Welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. That was a beautiful, holy moment there. There's no greater instrument than when we just lift our voices together. What may seem or sound like, you know, we all don't sound like Brie when we sing, right? But there's still something that is so elevated and beautiful when we worship. It was. And you know, that's so much as we take steps forward as a church. We're never going to lose that. We're always going to protect that and preserve that. We're not going to outproduce ourselves in worship, but we're just going to be authentic and genuine and stick with what's tried and true. Because I don't know about you, but the scriptures are what is tried and true. And there should never be an absence of worship that is, or prayer outside of what the scriptures teach. So much of what true, heartfelt, authentic worship looks and sounds like the scriptures. And we must return to that, and that's really the heartbeat of these last several weeks. Allison, if you would put up Acts 2, 42, I believe it is, through 44. And we're thinking about just that moment and that which truly means to be spirit-filled in form, spirit-filled um, in what the apostles brought forth to help bring formation in our worship. This is what they did in the early church. It says, and they continue steadfastly. I'm talking to a steadfast group of people showing up to church in single-digit weather today. Come on, give yourself some love. Look what they stayed steadfast in. It was the apostles' doctrine, the scriptures. What was taught, what was handed down, it's our responsibility to one another. It's my responsibility to you to hand down what the apostles taught. It's what we hold steadfast to. We fellowship together. We just don't fellowship in vain. We surround ourselves around the Lord's body through breaking of bread. It's not just talking about mere bread, you get it, Kroger, right? But it's surrounding ourselves around his body and his blood. This is what's known as true fellowship. And then it's in prayers. Notice you don't see prayer, but you see prayers. And this is to show that when we pray, it's not just to be all the time spontaneous, where Todd's praying one thing over here, Greg is praying one thing over here, but there is unity and there's form in our prayer life. The prayers here would be what the church would pray, which would be the Psalms, that that would be their form of how they would pray. And the way I always say, especially if you don't know how to pray, where to start to pray, start with the scriptures because you can't go wrong praying that which is divine, that which is the word, and start there and allow God to grow you from that place. The Psalms are beautiful, they're humble, and you can pray perfectly according to the word of God when you pray the scriptures. 
because you're not going to pray your own heart, your own intentions, your own will, your own wants, your own needs. So start there and pray God's heart, his will, his needs, and get formed in the prayers that are handed down. And it says, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And we've always believed here that there would be the manifestation, there would be signs and wonders, but it wouldn't be something that you have to look for that's just spectacular all the time. Signs can be supernatural and they don't have to be spectacular. Now they can be, but I think many times we miss signs and wonders when we are always looking for the shiny thing, the sparkle, or that which is spectacular all the time. You can miss just everyday life of God doing signs, wonders, and miracles. You know, this morning as I was just praying, I just began to count my blessings. I was praying and getting our kids ready for church today. What a joy it is to get to come to church, kind of like Bree was saying. What a joy it is to get to pastor, to lead, to serve you that we don't take these things for granted. And it says, now all who believed were together had all things in common. There is a unity when we surround ourselves around the scriptures, around the word, that only he can build and only he can form. And this is what I'm believing God for. This is what we're standing in faith for as a church, that this be what unifies us, not your preferences. And what we'll talk about a little bit today is when you lose the value of the cross, your preferences get elevated and the cross gets, gets decreased. When the cross is that which is elevated, your preferences really don't mean anything and they don't matter because you're correctly ordered. You're worshiping the way that the scriptures teach us to worship. And if that's in place, your preferences on sound, um, on a production, on how you feel you have to have somebody to help you to get you in a place of worship. Those just fall to the wayside before you pull into the church parking lot. And I'm telling you, there's some of these just basic things we've got to get back to. and We've got to check ourselves. I'm talking to myself of what we prefer versus that which is true and then allowing that which is true to form us into that which we must wrestle with. If you lift your hands, let's just receive... As Bree said last week, worship is a posture. It's not a sound level. So, Father, we posture ourselves in a place of worship. We posture ourselves today so that on Monday it can be worship when we wake our kids up, when we wake up for the day and we drive to work, we handle our business and all that you put in front of us. Let everything we do be worship to you. So, Father, we posture ourselves today. Ready us. Let us be tried and a true people. And Father, we thank you for what you're going to do in us today. Let it be a living word. We're not just a dead sanctuary corporately and privately, but we are a living sanctuary. We want the living word, the living scriptures, the living tradition. We want that which is alive to permeate every part of our lives. So Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, energize our beings today. Energize our soul with the goodness of God, with the life-giving nature of the Spirit of Jesus. We love you. In his name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Well, you can be seated. I'm telling you, last week when we had our praise Sunday, we can go from big and loud and fun, and then we'll strip it down. So I love the diversity of 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 our worship and and what we're able to, um, how we're able to worship, how we're able to connect with God, and every part is needed. Um, and so thankful that you're here today. And shout out to, um, if you didn't hear, Sarah and uh, Tyrell. Uh, maybe, I know, you, you never know when pastor starts with that. If you didn't hear, they thought they were having a, um, a baby girl. And how many weeks were you up to this point? Yeah, you're six, so you're six months. So a few, so a few weeks ago, you told me this. And they found out they're like in the point one, 0.01% where they went in for another checkup and found out it was gonna be a boy. So they are surprised and excited. They have two girls already, so um, thankfully they didn't have their baby shower yet, so you still have time to get them something for a boy. But they jumped in and they were serving in GPC Kids last week for the first time, so just wanted to give you a shout out and thank you for that and uh, all those that are, are serving and helping everything tick and click and as we be the church together. Gabe is here today, a former Zion Lion, Lanita's um, grandson and his girlfriend's here. We welcome you guys as well. Thankful you're here. It's crazy when you see, you know, Gabe was just a kid and I feel like I sound like Pastor Joyce. She'd always say, I knew you when you were a baby and like, here we go, I'm getting older now. (laughs) But I can remember having you and seeing you in second and third grade here at ZCA and now seeing you as a young man and it's always incredible. And that's the joy of even pastoring young and you know we have close to 200 kids at ZCA and seeing all these guys grow up and eventually they'll come back we'll see the, how, where their lives go and how things shake out so thinking legacy in mind is always so important and legacy just doesn't happen by accident but it's a lot of small choices along the way to do the hard things over and over consistently consistently to sacrifice and to stay when no one else stays, to uh, put your head down when everyone else's head is up. And um, I'm so thankful for so many who've been consistent in my life and in your life and the life of this church so that we can progress to the place that we're going. And we can do it in a way that isn't full of debt, that isn't full of just sloppiness and compromise, but that is tried and true. That is on a cash basis. Um, that is moving forward in a place of where Holy Spirit you do whatever you want this is your church this is your house have your way so I pray you you see the reality and the enormity of how we're moving and the way we're moving and how that is not always the way things happen in the, the realm of church but as we move this way God's hand is on it and um, he's blessing it and so today, and it kind of in, you'll see littered in every sermon, there's just these prophetic nuggets of really how Jesus builds his church and how we're moving forward in, if we look at how Jesus teaches the scripture, we can look at how Jesus builds his church. And um, I don't know about you, but I would rather him build the church than you and I build the church. Doesn't that sound better? have a church that looks a little bit more like Jesus every day. 
And so I want to look at what Paul has to say, and then I want to get somewhere. If you're taking notes, the title of the message is, It Is Written. We're still talking about cultivating a love for the scripture. So we'll kind of land the plane and bring it all together at the end. But I spoke on this a few weeks ago, uh, and it's 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. And it says this, Paul says, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. And in leading a quiet life, it doesn't say just living a quiet life, but you lead that lifestyle. And as you make choices every day, as you get up and say, you know what, this is my focus that I'm going to aspire. I'm going to put plans in place. I'm going to have goals in place to lead a quiet life, to lead a life that isn't all about me, isn't all about look at me, but there's things that are hidden in your life. You don't have to post everything. You don't have to shout about everything. You don't have to make your opinion known on everything. I know it's 2023, but I think I can say that still. But look what it says. It says, mind your own business. Work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. What a beautiful promise on the back end of that of leading a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your own hands, doing what has been commanded, that apostolic doctrine, what, what we're taught in Scripture, and that we can walk properly, and that those that are on the outside of these walls, on the outside of your home, that they begin to see something that they would aspire to do as well. Your life is your greatest witness, not just what you say, what you do. My kids take more of what I do than what I say. And that's just a principle of life. And so I think if we can see the, the way, even what Paul says very bluntly, plainly, and simply, that this is, can unlock some things in your life. I look at the part of where it says, that which has commanded you. If you go to the Great Commission, we hear it this way, but we kind of stop. Matthew 28, um, 18 through 20. You know this. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We kind of stop at 19, and then we need to see in context of what verse 20 says. And it says, teaching them to observe what? All things that I have what? Commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of age. So a huge part of this great commission, co-laboring, co-missioning with Christ is in the teaching, is in the discipling of not just going and baptizing and getting people to make confessions of faith, though that is a part of it, but how much do we leave out the hard work of then teaching our families, teaching our churches of what Jesus actually commands us to do, how he teaches us to walk, and how he teaches us to live. And I think, again, we, we decrease or we kind of push Jesus in this corner where he's only about the cross and he's only about Calvary, though everything that is the epicenter of who he is. But he also teaches us how not to just live, but how to have abundant life. And I think we discount that part so much that we just want to go and we want to do, but we never take the time to sit down and to allow the commands of Jesus to make us tried and true to flesh out who he is and to look more like him. You know, we see, and this is very sobering for me, but this should be sobering for anybody who has a platform. 
any parent who speaks and teaches into your children, any place in any kind of ministry. Uh, Timothy speaks to the place that and the mindset we're to have. First Timothy 3, 4 through 7. Again, you see just where we can get it wrong because we don't sober up underneath the weight that is to be placed on anyone who speaks or teaches on behalf of Jesus. And parents, as we're the first picture of Christ our children see, or teachers and leaders over kids, you're a picture of Jesus, you're a picture of the gospel. It is a very weighty thing to carry. It says this, and this is qualifications of, of those who teach. Verse four, it says, one who rules his own house well. So before you put anybody in any kind of position, how are they ruling their own house? How are they walking in their own marriage? How are they raising and training up their own children? And I know this is heavy stuff, but it has to be weighty because you can't just hide behind a position or hide behind an anointing and it just be broken on the inside. And if you've ever been hurt by a leader pastor, a, a person in authority, most likely what is underneath, there is a place of brokenness of where what you're about to see, they are not managing that which is first and foremost. And it's a platform then becomes an escape because I can do church stuff well, but then my marriage and my family's broken underneath. And my heart is heavy for pastors who hide these things and be in a place of my platform is good, but my home is, is not managed well. And we flip-flop it so much that if I'm just good up here, then God will just take care of what's back here, where it's really the opposite. If you, if you manage your affairs and your home and that which God has put before you, then he'll take care of this because it's his. It's not yours anyways. So he says, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. In notes it says, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, and hear this, why is this important? Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Satan fell because of pride, and it's saying if you put someone to if you put so much on someone too young who has not matured, and youngness is not by age, but it's by maturity level. If you put too much on someone who is too immature, then you are setting them up to fail. You're setting them up to fall and falling in the same sin and temptation and condemnation, it says here, as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach again and have the snare of the devil as his reward. So we've got to understand there is importance in having a good name. There is importance in fighting for that which is most valuable. And I'm not saying get religious and legalistic about it, but we just throw this stuff out so quickly and so easily in the name of I'm reaching people, in the name of all ministry is, is, is good ministry. 
And where I'm trying to get us today is to get us to the meat of where this stuff actually matters. We take it serious and we shepherd our lives, our lives personally, and we shepherd those around us accordingly. And this is really the, what we're going to be getting into, men, is in our Bible study as we start um, on Thursday here at 6.30. We're going to be getting into this of how we shepherd the way that we see Paul and Timothy and Titus teach us to shepherd in this way. That our private life, our hidden life, is just as good as not better of how people perceive us. That that be the place that we put the focus on. You even see Jesus when he would um, be expected to go and teach. You see places where no one could find where he was, right? He had a scheduled meeting. I'm sure he had an itinerary at times. And his disciples would go around looking for him and asking, where in the world is Jesus? He's here to teach. And when they would finally find him, he would be in a corner on his knees praying. Can it be said of us that no one can find us and the reason they can't find us or they don't get a text back from us or a Facebook reply from us is because we're guarding that time and we're praying and being fed by our Father. I mean, that's just leadership 101 from Jesus. That he never chased the crowds and the crowd was never his priority but getting it right and keeping it right with his Father was what his priority was. I think that's Mark 1, 37. If you got it back there, you can see it and you can read it. You know, I love what Jesus says too in, in Matthew 6, 6. It's the Father who sees in, what you do in secret, he will reward. And I think we get it so backwards from time to time where we, we put out um, the good all the time and we want people to see the good, but then we keep the sinful things secret and they stay secret. And Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, you'll see when he did miracles, he would say, don't tell anybody about it. And how, how many churches, the way you see that a church is walking in anointing or the way that the Holy Spirit is there, it's this undercurrent of do signs and wonders and miracles follow that ministry? And if they do, I can trust it. And if they don't, then something's wrong or something's off. And what we do is we proselytize or we put out that Look at all of these miracles. Look at God moving here in order to attract people when so much of it is so flip-flop with Jesus of when he does a miracle, he says, don't tell anybody about it because the sign is what he's not after. He's after the heart and the sign opens the heart. But in the church, we're so caught up, give me the sign and I walk away with the sign and I never let him get into the heart and really heal the condition and the place of the soul. You know, this is why I, um, in my walk, and, and kind of as, as you build the church according to Christ, is there's these feasts and there's these benchmarks and these landmarks, kind of like you have with Easter and Resurrection Sunday, you have with Christmas, the nativity, that there's these places where to uh, have continuity in and consistency in and walk with Christ in, because there is blessing and consistency and continuity and getting in rhythm when a church or a spiritual family can get in rhythm together and begin to walk in the life and in the footsteps of Jesus, then you're consistently staying formed of who Jesus was. You're not missing parts of his life and just skipping over things. And so much as, as we build this church, I want that to be priority, that we don't miss 
parts and lives of Jesus because we don't understand it. We don't know the importance of it. We're ignorant to it. But when we walk in the ways of Jesus, that's the way we become like him. Because every jot and every tittle is important. And when we really begin to value the, the written word, the word made flesh, who is Jesus, when we value it and we sit with it and we meditate on it and we walk in it, that's how the transfer takes place in becoming more like him. You know, the church at, at large would, uh, last Saturday, there would be what the, the focus in Scripture would be the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And as I want to get to Matthew 4, we have to look at Matthew 3. Before he went into the wilderness, before he said, it is written, and he used the scriptures to defeat the enemy, um, he had his baptism. And when you think of the powerful moment of, you have to ask the question of why in the world would Jesus be baptized into a baptism by his cousin John that would be focused on the remission and forgiveness of sins? Did Jesus sin? No. That's an easy one, no. <laughs> he was sinless. So why would he be baptized in this? And um, it, I find it because it, it shows the posture of Jesus. This is what really he's showing us in his baptism. Is he is willing to go humble and to go low. And as, he, as you read the account in Matthew chapter 3 and, and in 4, you would see that it was all to perfectly fulfill, to perfectly identify with you and I. In other places of scripture, it says that he who knew no sin became sin, right? He was the perfect spotless lamb. And in perfectly identifying with us, it shows that he was willing to go as low even in his baptism. The Trinity is revealed here. This is where we see the triune God. We see a dove, right? The Holy Spirit come in the form of a dove. We see the Father speak. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we see Christ. So we see the Trinity revealed. And if you really want your mind to be blown, you can go to Genesis 1, 1 through 11, and you can even see pictures and types of Christ's baptism in the beginning creation account. And I'll probably save that for a baptism Sunday. But when you are looking and searching for Christophanes, which means Christ revealed from Genesis to Revelation, when you begin to see Jesus everywhere, it so cuts to the heart when you read Leviticus and Numbers and it makes the scriptures come alive when you see what Jesus said uh, on the road to Emmaus that what from Moses to, uh, to myself, the scriptures were all about me. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. So Jesus says, you can find me everywhere in the Old Testament. And when you can find Jesus and see Jesus, it puts a love for him when you read anything and when you read everywhere of where the scriptures teach. And this is where I'm trying to get us to is there is no Jesus outside of the scriptures and there is no church that does not look like the scriptures. And if you want to stay clear of heresy, what this, uh, this modern approach is, it's so individualistic that I can just have my Bible, I can have my experience with the Holy Spirit, and I go figure it out myself. I'm never in community. I'm never taught corporately. I never submit under anything or anyone. You see, a part of what Jesus is teaching us in his baptism too, it is, it is Christ-like to be submitted 
Jesus was willing to submit himself in that moment to his creation, John, right? And allow his creation to baptize him. Think how low for the son of God to allow that which was he created to baptize him. So you can see the humility, the lowliness, his approach, his heart. And he teaches us this. And he walks us through this because this is how you sit with the scriptures. This is how you grow deeper in your walk with Christ is it's never through ego, pride, your ideas, your preferences. Again, I'm preaching to myself, but it's saying I'm going to go here and allow this to become my preference, allow this to become my ideas. And this is how I'm going to walk and how I'm going to live. So in, in understanding the ministry in the life of Jesus, you know, the, er, the church, the early church would show and, and describe his baptism as it's quite incredible. If you look at the depictions of Christ, he would be in the Jordan, right, where he was baptized. And if you look at the history of this, it's, it's quite amazing. When the Old Testament talks of the Ark of the Covenant, there would be a place where it would be passed through the Jordan. And church history would teach us that the place that he would be baptized would be the place of where the Ark of the Covenant would be passed through in the Jordan. So when you see all the connections, it's just phenomenal. And in his baptism and how it's depicted, as he descends into the water, the waters don't engulf him because, again, he's in no need of remission of sin. He's sinless. But what it's showing you and I is that all of creation... Uh, it's as though the waters surround him and he parts the water that all creation flows from him and all creation is absorbed into him and he makes you not a better person but a new creation we're all baptized into him right and so when we understand the fullness of what Christ is teaching us through this then we understand how powerful the scriptures you have and if you can begin to see that Yes, the the written text is powerful, but the person it's about, when you cling and connect to him, then power and authority, life and abundance will flow from you because you're connected to him, because you're in him. We, I was teaching in, in ZCA Chapel this week, or maybe it was last week, I don't know if I said this already, but how Paul used the scriptures in one form as Saul to persecute the church, to hurt the church, to literally murder and kill the church and could show you jot and tittle of why he's doing what he's doing. But then he has an encounter with the person of Jesus and then he takes those same scriptures and then blesses the church, heals the church, loves the church, extends the mercy of Jesus to the church. So without properly seeing him, then you can see a scripture like Saul saw it Or you can see a scripture in light of Christ, how Paul sees it. You with me on this? And this is why we have so much confusion and disunity. Because if the scriptures are not seen in light of Christ, then there's every opinion, every nuance. We split hairs, we break communion here, and we start our own church here, our own ministry there. But when it all gets back into around the person of Christ, there will be unity that no man can break. But you gotta be willing to sit with it and study it. That's why I said it's better. I would rather you read 10 chapters and sit with it all year than read 10 books of the Bible 
or read the, try to get through the whole Bible. The goal is to not to just get through it to say, I read it and I check a box, but did it actually get in you? Did you memorize anything? Did you sit with it? Did it break your heart in places to become more like Jesus in it? I'm telling you, this is what builds maturity and builds the church up, not just builds and puffs you up, right? So as we see the importance of this, I love this, and I wrote this down, that the most joyful life is the one who holds on the least, and Jesus models this. So, much, so many times we cling to the wrong things and we, we cling to what we want and our wills and our ideas. But when you live a life that is consistently letting go, then you're gonna be filled with more joy and you're gonna cling to him a lot easier. M- m- many of us, we can't even cling to him because we're clinging to so many other things, right? We're the soil that the weeds are growing up in and crushing the word out in our lives. Your inner strength or lack thereof is directly connected to your vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. If you don't have inner strength, inner stability, inner stamina, resiliency, if, you are, uh, if you're so broken consistently and all the time and never growing, you've got to get the right vision of who Jesus is. Every question that comes your way, every question that you ask Every question that the church has to then answer of what is the purpose of life, what do I do with this, is this wrong, is this right, all of it can be answered and flipping it on its head and saying and asking the question back, well, how do you see Jesus? And depending on if you are rightly seeing him or wrongly seeing him, it will answer every question you have because he's the centerpiece and he's the cornerstone because Jesus not only says, here's how you build, but he says, I will be the one to build it. I'll be the one to build your life. And here's how you're gonna build it with me and in me. And it just, it brings a freedom into your life where you don't have to figure it out yourself, right? Matthew 16, and and I wanna start to close with this. And this is where... Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So what is the right vision of Jesus? Peter asks this question, as we all do. Um, And, you know, as Jesus asks this, Peter gets it right. In verse 16, if you put this up, you've heard it. Simon Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So as Peter gets Jesus right, right, he rightfully answered. And, and Jesus is trying to get Peter and all of us to have the right kind of vision of who he is. So when he gets it right, look what verse 17 and on says. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you, Peter, that on this rock, so on this revelation that Peter got of getting Jesus right, that you were the Son of God, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that on this revelation, on this rock, this is how I will build my church. You, you following, you tracking with me. And it says, in, in building this, the gates of haze, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
so Peter gets the revelation right. Jesus then takes it a step further that on this revelation, this is how you're to build the church. And more importantly, this is how you're to build everything in your life. That this is the epicenter that everything flows out of. And so in this, and here's where you're gonna see the work of the enemy. Because when you get Jesus right, you alarm all of hell to then to start fighting against you. Because even Jesus says that you're gonna build But then he has to give a promise because as you begin to build rightly, guess what? Hell is coming after you. It's coming after your family. It's coming after your marriage. It's coming after what you're gonna put your hand to. So then you gotta get ready and armor up because when you begin to rightly walk with Jesus, that's what the enemy fears. When he keeps you in confusion and getting Jesus wrong and making uh, and walking and believing and living and being faithful to the wrong things, He's already got you. But when you begin to get him right, you better get ready. So even in this, in verse 20, reading on, it says, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So once again, you see where Jesus says, all right, you know this, it's not time to tell anybody yet. And immediately in verse 21, Jesus brings it all around to what it's about. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, so they get the revelation, hell will not prevail. They get the revelation, it says that he began to teach or to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Now, what Peter's about to say next is the famous line that I've been bringing up through the series where Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him for what he just said here. So in verse 22, look what Peter says. Then Peter took him aside. First off, and this is very, you know, Peter-esque, of who are you to take the Son of God, take the Lord aside and say, Jesus, come here. I have some more wisdom than you, and I'm about to rebuke you, right? This shows how many times we can just think that we got it right, or we're tired of hearing something that doesn't align with our preference, They wanted Jesus to physically rule and reign, to rule with the sword, to, you know, take over the capital city, but this was not his way. So I can tell you the reason reason Peter would rebuke you because, or the nature of who Jesus was, was he would always bring the mission and vision back to the cross. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is Christ crucified. And what we've got to see is Jesus rebukes Peter here in verse 23. So he pulls him aside. He rebukes him saying, far be it from you, Lord, that it shall not happen to you. Verse 23, he then turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Also, see the leadership style of Jesus here. He's not afraid to rebuke what needs to be rebuked. I believe many of us stay mature because we don't have leaders or we don't have the stomach to take real Christ-like rebuke. Not abuse, hear me, but rebuke. So Jesus rebukes him. He says, you're an offense to me. He calls him Satan, doesn't try to water it down or explain it. He says, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And what you gotta hear and see through this is any ambition, any agenda, Christ off of his cross that seeks to remove the cruciform nature of who Jesus is, is satanic and is demonic. 
This is what Peter was doing. He says, no, you're not gonna go die. No, that doesn't have to be what is promised to you, right? And so what Jesus is rebuking here is anytime you try to remove the cross from Christianity, it's satanic, it's demonic. And this has to bring it all back around full circle is any preference you have that is not Christ and him crucified, you need to check it at the door. You need to check it and repent of it. Because the way to fully be Christian and to fully be like Christ always is in carrying a cross. And this has been a lost message in the church because it's too hard. It doesn't sell books. It's not a conference bestseller topic, right? And so in getting into building a a church like Jesus, it's going to look a lot and feel a lot like a cross. You know, when you see um, Jesus speak as as we kind of, as we really close now in Matthew chapter 4, and Corey and Brie, you guys can come as we, we're going to take communion and, and have another moment just to prepare our hearts. How many of you know temptation is not sin? You're going to be tempted. But it's when you yield and give in to, the, in to that temptation, it becomes sin. The thing I've come to find in the gates of hell prevailing against you, a lot of what the gates of hell want to bring to you is to overwhelm you with temptation. Sin comes in a tailored suit to exactly everything you need. Every, the enemy will set up a perfect situation for you to get so offended that you not only walk away from church, you walk away from him. He will set up a situation in your family where you get so bitter and hurt at that person that the relationship is severed with no hope of, of renewal or restoration. I'm telling you, when he brings hell, he brings it in full force and will set you up to take the bait, to take the offense, to walk in the bitterness. But here's what we gotta understand about temptation is the closer you get to Jesus, the more temptation will be there because God will use, Jesus will use temptation to test your character, to get you ready. And when you overcome those temptations, the breakthrough on the other side of it is worth the fight against it. And so if I can encourage you today, keep fighting those temptations. Keep fighting those little foxes that want to spoil the whole vine. Because they run low, they run to the ground, they chew at the root, and then the fall is great. And the thing with temptation, it doesn't happen all at once. It's just a little bit here. It's a little leaven over here. And it just takes a little leaven to spoil the whole batch. You know, we see as Jesus goes into the wilderness. So he, he leaves his baptism. And after he leaves his baptism, he then walks, it says, that he had the spirit of Jesus, or he had the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He walks into the wilderness with the spirit after his baptism. And after he fights the enemy in three different occasions, as he's fasting for 40 days, it then as his exit from the wilderness, he exits saying he was filled with the power of the Spirit. And it's in your wilderness, it's in your testing, and it's in your stretching, it's in your temptation, is then that which you have then becomes powerful. And it becomes real. 
And when you see how Jesus fights the enemy, he doesn't fight with what he feels, with what he thinks, with what he perceives, but he fights him with the scripture. As we're talked about, and we're talking about cultivating a love for scripture, if you wanna have real spiritual warfare, if you wanna really fight the enemy, fight him with the same sword that Jesus uses. He uses the word, he uses the scripture. Matthew 4, 4 says this. Remember, Jesus is fasting, and Jesus being fully God and fully man, Satan thought he could attack the weak points of his humanity, right? Because Jesus still needed to take a nap. Jesus still needed to rest. Jesus still needed to eat. So the enemy sees an opportunity. Okay, here's Jesus still fasting, which I find amazing at the end of the account of his wilderness season. As he was breaking his 40-day fast, it says, then Jesus got hungry. I don't know about you, when you start to fast, it's about four hours and you get hungry. (laughs) Jesus is a master faster. But look at, at the weapon of choice of Jesus here against the enemy. He uses the word, but he also uses what the enemy would call that which is hunger, would be seen as weakness, that you're weak right now, Jesus, and I can get you. But that which was weak in him, he was actually using as a strategy to defeat the enemy with. And this is how Jesus works, is when we begin to walk in a posture, that's why fasting is a tool and is a weapon and is a strategy. It's because in it feeling like I am so weak, I am, I am famished, I, I am, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm frustrated. It's in that weakness, it is actually a strength to defeat the enemy. You see how Jesus always turns it on its head. And so he uses the word, he says in Matthew 4, 4, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, what Jesus is telling Satan in this battle, in this temptation, is he's saying, there is bread I have that you know nothing about. And if we're to walk a life of victory, if we're to build our lives according to the blueprint with him, for him, and make it about him, is that there is bread that many of us have still not yet tasted. There is bread that we are not nourishing ourselves with. Where if Jesus says that man cannot live by bread alone, how much more should we be immersing ourselves in this? Because this is where the power is. This is where the nourishment, the sustenance that you need to defeat the enemy, to break the generational curses, to raise your children, to heal your marriage. I'm telling you, there is bread you can feed one another and feed yourself and you will never hunger again. And I'm telling you, this is the bread that we're gonna build this church on and we're gonna build families and we're gonna build our kids with. It's not gonna be just make you feel better all the time. There's times and places, don't get me wrong, but understand that if the bread is not first and foremost, you're gonna walk away empty and dead. And this is where we gotta see as we talked of last week that you've gotta learn how to feed yourself. So Jesus says this, And this is where I want to end. If you'd stand, and as we prepare to worship, 
as we prepare to take communion. My prayer in my heart and where I, feel, where I sense and, and feel the Holy Spirit directing in this moment is that there's some of you, you're eating the wrong thing. And not only are you eating the wrong thing, maybe you're trying to eat the right thing, but you're doing it the wrong way. As I've been preaching, I just, I see this, this connecting, getting you back in place, getting you reconnected and plugged back in through repentance saying, Jesus, I've done it wrong. I'm tired of doing it wrong. I want to do it right. I want to build your way. It can be that simple. I was thinking of, of David, you know, specifically in the account with Goliath. You know, David went to attack Goliath, not out of his hatred for Goliath, but if you read the account, it was that Goliath was mocking God. And that was something he was not gonna put up with. So it wasn't that he hated Goliath, but he loved the Lord so much more. And even as you take ground from the enemy and for the kingdom. It can't be I hate this person or I hate this situation or I hate this circumstance, but it has to be so much for and bigger because of how much you love him. And out of your love for him, that's what gets you to act and move out on. You with me? So David, you know the story. When he gets tired of the mocking, he goes to Saul and Saul offers him the armor, right? And David says, you know, Saul, I'll, I'll serve you. I'll play the harp for you. I'll, um, I'll do and, 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 and all, but this is not the way it's fought and this is not the way it's done. So David rejects the armor. And you know what he goes back to? He goes and gets his slingshot. He gets his weaponry. Why does he get this weaponry? Because this slingshot, he's killed the lion, he's killed the bear, and he's seen that God can do more when he was in a pasture, unknown, seeking God, playing his harp, that in those places of worship, God was putting a weapon in him. God was doing something much deeper that armor could never defeat, but that worship could. And so he goes and he gets the slingshot. Not only does he then get his slingshot, but it, it says he then goes to a stream that's flowing and he picks up five smooth stones. You know, when you think about what smooths your life over, what fills you and prepares you, is you just don't get, a, a stone naturally doesn't become, go from rigid to smooth. There has to be a consistent flow that is going over that stone. So David goes down and with a hand of hunger and a hand of faith, he picks up those smooth stones that were made smooth through the flow of his spirit and the flow of his presence. You see the types and the analogies here. What I'm telling you today is you can't live like this where when you need something, you open the Bible and say, this is where I'm gonna be and this is what I need today. No, you've got to have been in a place like David where you've been sitting with the scripture. You've been walking with the scripture. You've been reading the scripture. 
and those stones are already there. All you have to do is go down and pick them up. And you don't take somebody else's armor. You don't take what worked for somebody else because you've built it and prepared it with him. Those stones are smooth from the flow of his spirit and his presence. I pray things are unlocking for you today because this is how we grow and this is how we fight the enemy and how you take ground. This is how we build his church. This is how he builds his church. As we take a moment, let's prepare our hearts. You know, Jesus says, or Paul says in Corinthians, when it comes to taking communion, and we're going to sing before we play, or before we partake. He says, there's some of you that are sick because you're not rightfully judging yourself. You're not rightfully taking these elements. And if it says that there's some among you that are sick and deadly, Paul says, then what's on the other side of rightfully taking it, of repenting, of making sure sin is not habitually happening in your life? Then there will be life and healing available for you. This is why I pray if you've been new here or just in the last year that you take more communion than you ever have in your tenure of church and and, at GPC than anywhere else because this is a life-giving mystery. Just like marriage brings life to you, it should, so does communion. And we wanna rightfully do it and we wanna check our hearts. So as we sing today, take time to repent of sin, ask for the mercy of God and his grace to be shed abroad on you and prepare your hearts and we're gonna take communion, turn to Jesus. I believe he can do a miracle in your life today. In Jesus' name.
Feel the Lord touching you, prodding you, pricking you, and you need to make a, a tangible move toward the cross. I want you to bring your communion. I want you to just come kneel at this altar. And I'm going to be kneeling with you. If you're in need a miracle in your body, if you need to allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse you, to touch parts of you that are hidden, parts of you that you need to let go, a relationship restored. The altar is a place where it is a physical sign of the moving and flow of the Holy Spirit. And I believe as all of you that are, are coming, you're gonna get, walk away with a stone, a smooth stone, because this is the place where that stream begins to flow. This is where you reject the armor of Saul and you pick up the harp. You pick up the place of where the Lord has consistently touched you and moved powerfully in you. So Father, as we kneel, Jesus, as we kneel before the cross, Father, as heavy as life may be, as hard as life may be, Father, we thank you that you, your gospel, your good news is that you've destroyed sin, death, and Satan on our behalf. And Father, we choose to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow you. Those would be the next words of Jesus after he says, rebukes Peter that a cross focused life is where we will have the flow we will be vessels for the spirit of Jesus the Holy Spirit to possess to flow through 
that we be filled with the Spirit of God today. Church, if we can just stretch forth our hands to everyone who's bowing before, we thank you, Lord, that you're our great intercessor, Jesus. Father, I ask that as we are bowed low, that you move mightily. God, that we take refuge in you. God, that we be rid of ourself. We come down off our lofty ideas. We come down from our bitterness. We come down from the offense. We come down from the brokenness. And we say, here I am, Jesus. Jesus, make us whole. Make us alive. Just as God was face to face with Adam in the garden and breathed the life of the Spirit, I thank you that as we are face to face with your cross, with the altar, that life be breathed into us. And we thank you that it is not a far off breath, but it is an intimate breath of being face to face, just as Adam was formed. So you form us in our new creation face to face. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.